Hey, Kevin here, and I am happy to report that we are just two weeks away from brand new episodes of Philly Who. It's going to be the first new episode since July of 2020, uh, and it'll be the first time we publish regularly since 2019. It has been a heck of a journey. Uh, we have been diligently gathering Philly stories all summer and getting them ready for you to enjoy and we are so close. September 7th, we will be back. In the meantime, we are still sharing some of our favorite and some of the most popular Philly Who episodes that we have shared over the years. And this week, we're going to get ready for the impending football season by hearing the story of Connor Barwin, one of the coolest and most fun interviews that I have done. Connor is incredible. He's doing amazing work here in Philly, uh, and he is still involved in the Eagles organization. Uh, so please enjoy the story of Philadelphia pro bowler Connor Barwin. It was day after day. You know what I mean? I just, I just ride by and see it, ride by and see it. You see how there'd be 15 kids out there trying to play basketball where there's like potholes in the court. That's where it all started because I rode my bike past it. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today is the story of an NFL linebacker who overcame being deaf as a child to later become one of the best defensive players in the National Football League. Connor Barwin joined the Philadelphia Eagles in 2013, and while he has since moved on to play for other teams, he's made Philly his home. Here, he and his foundation are taking on the task of revitalizing the city's underserved public parks. The story of Connor Barwin's rise to NFL stardom and how he managed to find his passion while riding his bike down 20th Street is all now on Philly Who. Stay tuned. So right now, at the time of this episode's release, Connor Barwin is a free agent for the 2019 NFL season. He doesn't yet know what city he's going to play for this year, but he does know what city he's going to live in. Philadelphia. That's because ever since he came here in 2013 to play for the Eagles, he and his family have made Philly their permanent home. But before Connor signed with the Birds, his home was Detroit. He grew up in nearby Hazel Park, Michigan, and was part of a huge family. He had three older brothers, and his mother ran a daycare out of their house, so it was a hectic life. So hectic, in fact, that it was a whole year until anybody noticed that Connor had a pretty major medical issue since birth. I was like a year old, and my oldest brother, who was probably five or six, had a bad ear infection. So we went to the local doctor, and the doctor said, oh, Sean's totally fine. He's got an ear infection. You know, this will be fine but your youngest, he can't hear. And my mom was like, yeah, he can hear. And then the doctor turned me around and asked my mom to say something. And I just, I didn't do anything. I didn't react. You know, and just the chaos of our family, the first year of my life, no one even realized I couldn't hear. And then that started, you know, the, the multi-year process of a lot of surgeries to kind of regain my hearing back. And then subsequent surgeries to my left ear where I've kind of lost my hearing in my left ear again. Wow. And I was extremely blessed. I mean, I was, I couldn't hear and then I could hear, yeah. you know, I had to go through, you know, three or four major surgeries, but a lot of people don't ever get their hearing back. So we always had that perspective 
um, and always felt that we were very lucky. So after several surgeries, Connor regained his hearing and was able to have a relatively normal childhood. By the time he was 10, he had the same dream as a lot of other 10-year-old boys who love sports. He wanted to dunk a basketball. But there was one difference. Instead of just dreaming about it, Connor became obsessed. Again, it was normal for me. I didn't think it was anything special, but I would like ask my dad to wake up at six in the morning. So I'm in like fifth, sixth grade having my dad take me out in the cold and do like a 30 minute workout before school starts just because I want to be able to dunk a basketball in like sixth grade, which, you know, by seventh, eighth grade, I was dunking a basketball. And again, it was just me wanting to dunk a basketball, nothing more than that. So my parents might've realized it early on that I was kind of unique in that way. I didn't realize it. The basketball coach has a son in eighth grade who's, who's very good. And he is, uh, he's taking his son into the city to kind of play where the competition's a little bit better. The coach said, you know, maybe you should take your son into the city where my son's playing. It's just a little higher level of competition. My parents were like, all right, you know, we'll take him in there. You know, he loves, he likes to play basketball. Here's another place for him to play basketball. And so they did. And I just fell in love with it because it was just, the competition was so fierce. You know what I mean? It was so intense. That program was called Reach these kids were coming to play basketball. It was really just a place for them to, to eat. You know what I mean? Like they'd have to have, you know, juice boxes and pizza. And it was just where they would get their meal in the summer. You were meeting kids that were, you know, honestly trying to find somewhere to sleep. I remember at one point, once a, a group of kids realized where I lived, they realized where I live and I had like an above ground pool in my backyard. These kids would just like show up. They would just ride their bikes all the way out to where I lived and just like show up you know, just to swim in the pool, you know, cause they, they didn't have anywhere else to go. You know what I mean? There were no pools for them to play in, in the summer. Parents were cool with a bunch of kids coming to hang out. I mean, they were cool with it. I remember one time we were out of town <laughs> and we came home and there's like six kids in our backyard playing in the pool. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure our neighbors were like, what the hell is going <laughs> yeah. on? You know, just yeah. breaking into our yard and like hanging out in the pool. No, they're cool. They're my friends. I went to a very good Jesuit school, youngest of four boys. There was academy there. So I, I mean, my youngest, two youngest brothers went there from seventh grade to 12th grade. But after four years, after my sophomore year, I actually got kicked out of my high school. Very strict school. I was doing a seven on seven in the summer. And I remember the football coach walking up to me like, oh, you can't, you can't join the seven on seven. The school just called me and they're, they're asking you to seek education elsewhere next year for your junior year. What? Was this a surprise? Okay. Big okay. surprise. Big surprise. <laughs> like I didn't get, I didn't ever do anything too crazy. Like I was, you know, they were just kind of sick of the barroom boys. I was definitely like a little bit of a punk. My teacher took my CD player one time and I like broke in her office and took it back. I would be late for class a lot. I went and took my shirt in. It was like walkathon. Halfway through, I like got a ride home. <laughs> so just like stupid stuff just like that and they were just like, they were just like tired of it <laughs> but my parents were just so upset and reacted that the school was kicking me out that they put up a fight and the school let me back in under the condition that I couldn't play sports my junior year and we did that so it's shocking that I went back to that school um your junior year of high school you didn't play any sports well so I didn't play football I went back wasn't going to play any sports was the agreement I didn't get in any trouble the school said, you know, you've been, you know, you've been great. We're going to let them on the football team. It was homecoming week and I practiced for like two days. We get down to the fourth quarter. We're down by like three. There's like 30 seconds left. The head coach is like, all right, man, we got to put you in. <laughs> <laughs> so he puts me in at wide receiver. 
They throw the ball to me like three times. I catch the winning touchdown. We win the game at homecoming. My picture's like in the paper the next day. Following week, we have like a take-home quiz. I miss school. So I come back and they're going over the answers in class. And, I'm, and the teacher's like, go to the library and do it while we're going over the answers. And so again, I'm still, you know, 16. I'm kind of punk at this time. I'm leaving the last kid by the door who I know who are like, buddy, I'm like, hey, give me your worksheet. <laughs> and so I, and he's like, oh yeah, here you go. You know, it's just normal. And so I'm going to go to the library and like copy his worksheet. And uh, Mr. Bell called on him. And he was like, he like panicked and was like, oh man, Connor grabbed my worksheet on the way out. <laughs> Under the bus. So I only played one football game, had a great senior year playing football, playing basketball, got a scholarship to play football after my senior year. Yeah. University of Cincinnati. University of Cincinnati, yeah. At this point, you're just looking to pay for college. Happy to not have to take out any student loans. Yeah. Was psyched to play, keep playing football. And at this time, you know, I thought I was going to be a, you know, high school teacher or high school coach or something. Yeah. Now, when you got to college, was it different in any way? Like, I imagine the, the competition was higher, right? Did you enjoy that? My mindset changed pretty quickly upon getting to college, for better or worse. Pro sports seemed so far out of reach. You know, University of Cincinnati was a mid-level college football program. I wasn't going to, like, Michigan or Ohio State or, you know, Alabama. But as soon as I got there, my whole perspective changed because a lot of your audience will be familiar with this name, but Brent Selleck was there. And Brent had just finished his sophomore year, his best statistical season in college. And everyone around campus was touting him to be a professional player. So he was going into his junior year. I was an incoming freshman. I was essentially his backup. And so that first summer, we're working out together. We're running together. And right from, you know, the first couple of weeks I was there, seeing that he was being touted as an NFL player, it changed my perspective where I thought I can be an NFL player because I compared myself with him. I knew I could, you know, do everything he was doing. A month after being on campus, my goal was quickly changed from I'm going to be a high school teacher coach to, you know, if I stay healthy, I can make it in the NFL. Did Brent start hearing footsteps for the tight end position? Well, I joke with him. If he didn't leave for the NFL two years later, I was taking his spot. (laughs) That's great. We had a great, you know, couple of years together and he's a stud, had an unbelievable 11 year career here in Philly and, you know, probably will go down as the best, you know, tight end in Eagles history. Yeah. My senior year, Brian Kelly was there, the, the coach at Notre Dame right now. He kind of ran four wide receivers, spread offense, didn't really utilize the tight end that much. And then we kind of had a big hole on defense at defensive end. You know, again, I was 6'4", 240, you know, very athletic, pretty strong where you can kind of put me in at defensive end spot. And he sold it to me that unlike offense where a lot of things have to happen for you to even get the ball thrown to you, to make a play, you know, if you play defense, it's up to you every time. You just got to beat the tackle. You can get the sack, you can get a tackle. Yeah. Um, it's just you and that offensive lineman every single play. And so I bought into it right away, made the switch. You know, it's, it's worked out pretty good. Yeah. Now that's fascinating to me because so at this point, senior year, you must be thinking about, you know, playing in the NFL, right? Switching from offensive defense, switching to a completely different position your senior year. Is there any thought that, you know, what if this doesn't work out? This is my senior year. This is my chance to make the impression and get drafted. Were there any thoughts about that? Not really, because I knew I, I knew I would have success at defensive end and I did. 
some teams were still looking at me as an offensive player. You know, like I went to the Senior Bowl, which is the the college all-star game, and I played tight end. And then I had a number of teams that came to UC and worked me out as a tight end. Um, so some teams still didn't really know, you know, what position I would play. Um, then I ended up getting drafted by Houston and, and, you know, played in a 4-3 as a defensive end. How did you find out that you were drafted? You get a phone call. Um, back then, 10 years ago, the first and second round were on the same day. So we all sat there and watched the TV and we're just praying that at some point that I, my name got called in that first day on uh, about halfway through the second round, you know, Houston Texans called. And first thoughts, you get that call. The first thoughts were Houston, Texas. Like that was, I, w- I was thinking like Texas. I've never been to Texas. I'm moving all the way to Texas. Who's the quarterback? Who's on the team? Who are the coaches? Because through the draft process, there's all this gamesmanship. Teams are trying to hide who they like, who they don't like. My agent had kind of told me, you know, a handful of teams that were interested. I had went on a number of formal visits to teams. But Houston was, never did we talk to Houston. So I think that was my first thought. It was was a surprise that it was Texas. So you go to Houston. What's it like to be in the NFL? You made it, man. Like, any, any thoughts around, holy crap, I'm here. Well, that first year, yeah, I mean, it was, it was awesome. The first year's intense, though, for a rookie. Yeah. Probably still really is now for everybody. There's a lot of stress. You're trying to figure out if you're good enough or not. For me, I remember a moment, you know, the preseason was tough for me. I was thrown in there. I was a second-round pick, so, like, they, they threw you in there with kind of the starters and you're kind of trying to let you find your footing. And I remember playing against the Kansas City Chiefs. You know, it was a Pro Bowl left tackle. And I was like, man, there's no way I can get around this guy. And I was just like running into a, it was like running into a brick wall. It's like everything I did didn't work. I was like spazzing out. I was, I just like, it was too much. And then I remember I was like, I'm going to do something crazy. <laughs> so I did like a fake spin move and it worked and got a sack. And that just like kind of opened everything up after that. It was just like, I needed a moment to kind of like have some success calm myself down. And I think after that, everything started slowly picking up. Uh, but overall, that rookie year is pretty hard. It sounds like, just as a layman, I think of draft day, like I just said, like you made it. It sounds like that's just the beginning, right? At that point, you get drafted, but you haven't made it yet. You've given yourself kind of the next opportunity. Right, the window's um, open. Yeah, it's a very, for the most part, it's a very honest business. Once you get drafted, you know, again, I was a second round pick, so... You know, if I'm really analyzing this stuff, you're probably going to get a year or two because the team's made that kind of investment in you. But, you know, you're not going to get much more than that. If you, if you really show up and can't play at all, they'll cut their loss and move on very quickly. So tell me about your first game of your second season. Again, rookie year was, you know, we made it through the rookie year, learned a lot. And then I had a full off season, no basketball, no nothing, trained my ass off, uh, had gained probably 10 or 15 pounds, was really ready to go, had a great summer, had a great training camp. And then first game, first quarter, we're playing Peyton Manning uh, and the Colts, and they're driving down the field. It's like second and long. Um, I remember being on the right side playing defensive end. Antonio Smith is just inside me, one of my favorite guys I ever played with. And, you know, very football people will know that the famous, like, Peyton Manning draw, they ran the draw. And I kind of rushed the passer, turned to redirect to make the tackle. And my uh, Antonio Smith right next to me stepped on my 
right foot. And as I turned and tackled the guy, he kind of cemented my foot into the ground and my whole leg kind of went and my foot didn't completely dislocated my ankle, broke the bones down there. And and that was the end of my second year in the NFL. Right then and there, you knew right away that the season was over. In my mind, it literally felt like my foot was like a peanut butter jar and my, or my leg was the peanut butter jar and my foot was the lid. You could feel it just open. Like you just feel it just turn. And I was like, that, that can't be really what happened. And then I laid on my back and there's, there's a great picture on the internet of me picking up my leg to look at my foot to see what happened. And my toe is literally like hanging off the right side of my leg. Uh, and I remember looking to our sideline where everybody was and you can just see all of my teammates and coaches just kind of be like, Oh, you know, cover their eye and try not to look. Cause yeah. it was literally, my foot was just like dangling off. I, uh, I saw that. <laughs> so I cringe like crazy and stuff like that. And I'm like cringing like crazy right now on the field. They have to like turn it back. So I can remember them like right away trying to like get it back. So that was, that was really scary. You know, it took about a whole year to get that recovery in my third year. You know, I, I played my whole third season pretty much like taped cast on my ankle, but I made it through it. And over time, you know, it doesn't even bother me anymore. Thank God to, you know, some great trainers I had in Houston and a great doctor that did the surgery. Was there any doubt that you'd play again? There was doubt at the beginning. Yeah. There's a lot of doubt that, you know, when you see your foot hanging off the side of your leg, you know, you don't know if you're going to be able to play again, but it was just, you know, you slowly, slowly, you know, work at it and you start to see, you know, improvements every couple of weeks. So you spend four years in Houston and then you become a free agent. Signed with Philadelphia in 2013, Philadelphia Eagles. Had you ever been to Philly before? Never been to Philly. You signed sight unseen or did you come visit? No, sight unseen. I decided Philly because, you know, it was a historic franchise, the Cowboys, the Giants, the Redskins, Philly. I think I was excited about that. They had a young, quickly rising coach and Chip Kelly that everyone was excited about. And then probably most of all was Jason Kelsey and Brent Selleck were here and Trent Cole who were all fellow University of Cincinnati football guys. You know, I was really tight with Kelsey and, you know, he told me great things about Philly and, uh, you know, he really kind of encouraged me that this would be a great place for me. I read that most of the Eagles live in like South Jersey or, or in the suburbs or something. You decided to live in Philadelphia, the city. I like being in the mix. I like living in the city. My dad was a city manager, so I understand kind of great things about cities when, when they work. I decided that I wanted to live where I played when I played four years in Houston. I lived there year round. I even lived in downtown Houston, which at that time, I mean, no one lived in downtown Houston, but yeah. I was kind of forcing it, <laughs> but I knew I was going to live in, in Philly. So I lived in the city. Uh, and yeah, you're right. Most guys, most guys live in South Philly, right down by the facility. Some guys live in Jersey. There's more and more starting to live in the city. Yeah. And you would bike to work every day. Yeah. Yeah. That first off season. Yeah. I would bike from, you know, I lived in Fittler square area. Uh, I would bike down to South Philly. You know, my family was always kind of public transit advocates, but I rode my bike and rode the, the train in Houston was like, nobody rides the train. In yeah, Houston. Did they, I didn't even know they had trains. In Houston. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I took a city's course in college. I had this really great professor and he kind of talked about the growth of cities and suburbs 
and, you know, kind of what happened because of cars and freeways and kind of the four door syndrome and how you, you know, when you go from point A to B in a car, you don't experience anything in between. And there's a lot that you miss. And when you ride your bicycle, you can stop. You know what I mean? You can smell things, you can hear things, you can see things, you're just moving slower. So for me, it's also just a, it's just a functional right. thing. And it bakes you know. in like an hour of cardio a day that you don't have to do. Like exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I get to the facility and I'm, my legs will be warmed up. I'd be ready to go. Yeah. And then it's like a natural coffee. You know, you, yeah. you just, you wake up the breeze on, you know, cold air on your face, wake you up. What types of things in those first, you know, few weeks, months were you seeing, hearing, smelling on your bike ride in Philly? Well, we love the the kind of stoop culture of Philly. You know, I would always ride by Ralph Brooks Park at 20th and Tasker. And that's where I decided to have my first project with my foundation. And it would have never happened if I didn't ride my bike past that lot, which was kind of this you know, small tot lot that was kind of falling apart. And then there was this old parking lot that had turned into a basketball court with holes in it. And there were like wooden backboards kind of falling down. It was really in rough shape. There's this very powerful stop the violence mural kind of as a background to it. But there were always kids, you know, there playing. And I knew I wanted to get involved in playgrounds and public space. And, you know, this one just kind of pulled on me and that's where it all started yeah. because I rode my bike past it. Right. Was it the type of thing where you one day rode past it and stopped and looked? Or was it just sort of day after day looking at it like, you know what, I think we need to make a change here. It was it was day after day. You know what I mean? I just, I just ride by it and see it, ride by it and see it. You see how some days it would just be empty and there'd be no life. And then some days there'd be... 15 kids out there, you know, with a basketball, trying to play basketball where there's like potholes in the court. So it just kind of, I don't know. I just kind of felt it after, you know, weeks or months riding by it. The Eagles, they helped me put me in contact with the city. And, you know, I called a meeting at the court, at the playground, you know, I showed up on my bicycle and there's like 10 people there, you know, all ready to, to sell me on why I should get involved in this site and invest in this site. And then I met this great guy, Jeff Tubbs, who had started a foundation and was doing mentoring in that neighborhood. And he had been working with people in the neighborhood about kind of a plan and what to do at that site. You know, initially I thought, you know, I could pay $50,000 or, you know, $70,000 and just repave the court and put up some new hoops. But I quickly realized talking to Jeff, talking to my parents, you know, seeing the way mural arts does things that kind of just this kind of drop in a new piece of equipment and then leaving is not a sustainable way to do things. So, you know, I decided to slow down, kind of do a more comprehensive plan and do it alongside the community in the neighborhood. So we worked with that community for probably two years to help them kind of reimagine what they wanted to see there. And now it ended up costing about $750,000 instead of of (laughs) $50,000, but you know, it's truly, you know, in such an inspiring place for me to go by and see how much life is there every day now and what's happening at that site. I think just seeing, you know, seeing the, the community garden come to life, seeing just the fresh paint on the court and the kids playing there, you know, it's just, it's just a very humbling feeling to be a part of a project like that. I mean, you know, we've gone on to do two more and we're working on our fourth now, but do you have any advice for, for any Philadelphian who wants to get involved in their space? Just talk to your neighbors. 
you know, you have way more in common with them than you think. And you have an interest in your neighborhood that it's, it's held accountable. It's well-maintained. It's getting sufficient, you know, city services. And so I think if anything, get to know the people you live around um, because you guys are all in it together. You know what I mean? It's funny. uh, I feel like, I mean, on my block anyway, I also live in Fishtown and um, nobody talks. Yeah, well, I think start talking to people. Yeah, thinking about it in this perspective, we all live next to each other. We spend most of our lives like within 10 feet of each other because the walls, you know, on the other side of the wall. Well, we're all in, we're all in our little tiny little bubbles. You yeah. know what I mean? And, and you know, you can make your bubble your house, but man, it's, it's a lot more fun if you make it like the six blocks you live around. Yeah. You start with the Eagles in 2013, 2014, you lead the league with 14 and a half sacks and yep. you go to the Pro Bowl. Yep. When you think back on that season, how do you feel? It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. I mean, it was my statistically my obviously my best season. I had a great coach in Bill McGovern. Had a great defensive coordinator in Billy Davis. Give a lot of credit to Vinny Curry, who's back on the Eagles. You know, a lot of people talk about. You know, I had a lot of sacks that year, and we did a lot of like moving me around and stuff. But essentially, it was pretty much me and Vinny just running stunts together the whole season, and we got really, really good at it. You know, a lot of ways I would play off of him. And he had nine sacks that year, which was his career high. So I'm thankful to him. Um, but for me, when I look back on it, you know, that was such a fun year. We just missed the playoffs at 10 and six, which was hard. But going to the Pro Bowl that one season is something that, you know, any, I, like I wish Brent Selleck would have went to the Pro Bowl one year. He should have, you know, he had an 11-year career. It was just special. And I'm thankful to have that, have the opportunity to do it once. I wish I, you know, would have went back a couple more times. You've mentioned a couple of times when you said best season for you and, and a couple others, you said statistically best season. Why make that distinction? Well, because it's how you do personally for me is never as fun as, you know, when, when the team does good. I mean, you know, as everybody knows, the Eagles went on to win a Super Bowl the year after I left. I mean, you would, you would trade that in for anything. You know what I mean? To be a part of something like that. My first year in Philly, we went to the playoffs. That was a lot of fun that year for the whole team, you know, to be, to, you know, you see what happens when you go to a playoff game in Philly, the whole, the whole town goes crazy. You're on a six year contract in Philadelphia. The first four years must've been a freaking blast. I mean, you were widely regarded as one of the leaders, if not the leader of the defense, maybe even the team, I don't know, making this intense impact in Philadelphia overall, were you, would you say that in terms of like the NFL, you were living the dream was, I mean, you must have been having a blast. No, I had a blast. I mean, I was, you know, I was young, you know, it was kind of at that point in your career where the physical and the mental all come together. You know what I mean? Loved being in Philly. Again, you know, those first two years we won 20 games with Chip. You know, things were pretty good. My wife moved here. She got a great job. You know, things were good. Yeah, I, I loved being here. This is where I thought I would play the rest of my career. And yeah. this would be home after I was done playing. Yeah. Now, after the fourth season, you were released by the Eagles. When that happened, you said a lot like, yeah, it makes sense. Kind of made a business decision, right? The, the contract was kind of backloaded a little bit. How did you feel, though, when that happened? You know, human nature, you, you don't feel good when someone lets you go. You know what I mean? You look back on it and you, you know, if you had assigned better contracts, you know, for me, that might have never happened. But, uh, you know, the contract I signed, you know, made me, you know, disposable. At that time, and they switched defenses, and you know, there's a lot of change going on, and it happened, and you have to move on. Um, but yeah, it was tough. It was tough anytime you, you know, get told 
know, they don't need you anymore. You know, especially after you had, you had made great friendships with people on the team, people outside of the team. Um, you realize kind of where things were going. I've always wondered because this happens all the time, right? You see NFL players get cut regardless of how many you know years they have left. It depends on that year's and, and, and you know, the immediate coming year's dollars. Do you think there's any hesitance with NFL players to really, really invest and ingrain themselves in a city knowing that? Well, no, that's, that's why I decided to live where I played because I had, you know, some decent security, you know, in Houston and in Philly. But, you know, as you can see with what happened to me, you ultimately don't. And for a lot of guys, you know, whether it's half or three quarters of a roster, it's even more, you know, year to year. You know, that's why guys don't invest in or commit to the communities they play in because they, you know, they know that, you know, at any time they could get cut. So a lot of guys move to a city, live there for the season, and then they either put roots down where they're originally from, put roots down, you know, where they went to college and don't choose to make home where they play because, you know, for the majority of the league, you're kind of bouncing around. So the following year, you signed a one-year deal with the Rams. And the Eagles would go on to win the Super Bowl that year. You must have had some complex feelings when that happened, right? Because a lot of those guys are your friends, your former teammates, but you're now a member of another squad. Well, I had a great year in LA. You know, we went out there and, you know, Sean McVay's first year there, we, you know, Andrew Whitworth, me, John Sullivan, some other guy, older guys came in. Uh, and we're part of kind of turning that uh, team around. We right. went to the playoffs for the first time, and I don't know how Which long. You guys did. I mean, um, quickly. We lost a, a tough one. We lost a tough game in the playoffs. We had a couple turnovers that we couldn't overcome. But, yeah, when the Eagles won the Super Bowl, it was like, you know, again, I was so – I understood what it meant, I think, to the city, maybe more so than a lot of guys that won the Super Bowl, just because, you know, how involved I was in the city. It was kind of a bummer. Felt like I really missed out. But again, it wasn't my choice ultimately to leave. You know, you quickly get over yourself when you see Jason Kelsey and some of your other best friends and, you know, Doug, who, you know, I think is great seeing him, you know, win a Super Bowl. And again, knowing all of my friends around this city that aren't involved with the Eagles, but what it meant to them, you know, then you quickly get over, you know, feeling bad for yourself and being happy. You know, I was living in Malibu, and after the parade, it was such madness. Kelsey was like, "I got to get out of Philly," <laughs> and so he just he came Especially and like after his mummers thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. Like, so he was like, "Man, I'm coming out to hide out at your Malibu cottage," and so it was cool. He just came and like kicked it with me for a week. You know, got to like take a deep breath uh, after such a, a grueling long season, and then the, the excitement of the Super Bowl, and then the parade. Yeah, that's awesome. So the following year, you signed a two-year deal with the Giants. The first year did not go well. Uh, lost six out of the first seven games. And then I guess the focus on the season changed more towards the future. And then you wound up being released earlier this year. So, I mean, what's your outlook now on playing in the NFL? I spent the last couple of months training pretty hard. You know, I left New York. It was kind of a bad situation. You know, you don't want to be an older guy on a team that's going young. You know, somebody playing was like seven and nine, you know, Doug's first year when even the last up to the second to last game, we were playing again in the playoffs. So in New York, you know, we played half the season when we already knew we were out of the playoffs. So that was strange for me. So it took me a couple of months to figure out, you know, whether I wanted to keep doing this or not. And ultimately, I, you know, decided that I want to keep going. So I've been training um, and I'm going to look for the right opportunity. 
You think you'll stay in Philly otherwise? Yeah, Philly's home. Philly was home for four years. And now I've kind of turned into that other guy in the NFL where I'm bouncing around. Mm. And, you know, when you're in Malibu for six months or New York for six months or, you know, maybe somewhere else that I go for six months, there's not enough time to kind of ingrain yourself yeah. in the community when you're kind of in and out like that. So Philly is it. It's where we're going to live when I'm done playing. Again, the foundation is here. Yeah. And so we're, we're pretty busy with stuff uh, with all of that. Now, you have an annual concert benefiting the foundation. Why a concert? Well, initially, I mean, I, I love music. And initially, I started going to Union Transfer right away. It's, a, it's one of my favorite rooms in the city. Uh, and I met Sean Agnew there. And, you know, I said, hey, man, I'm, I started this foundation and we're going to rebuild this playground. Can we have a concert to raise money? And then I'll match what we raise. And, you know, Sean's just, Sean's the best. And he was like, yeah. And he was like, man, you're going to match it then. And I'm just going to give you everything for free, you know, and it allows us to really raise some real money. So somehow we got Kurt Vile to do the first show, which was awesome. He did it for free. You know, we raised about $85,000. I matched it and we put that $170,000 to that first project at Ralph Brooks Park. And, uh, you know, we've grown uh, a little bit every year and now we're at the Dell this year. It'll be our second time at the Dell. Uh, which is almost 6,000 seats. And uh, we have Future Islands headline the show with Hop Along and Strand of Oaks and Carl Blau September 5th. So just around the corner, this really historic venue um, that the city had poured some money into about 10 years ago. And they do a summer series up there. It's very much kind of, you know, an R&B soul genre. And it's owned by Parks and Rec. And it's run by Parks and Rec. And I thought I need to have a show here. Like I need, it's a beautiful space. You know, there's not any indie rock or any rock shows there. You know, we got to have a show here and you can sell 1200 tickets at UT. You know, we can sell five, 6,000. And so the huge break for me or for us was uh, getting the war on drugs to do the show. And I had to court their manager for almost like two years. And I can remember telling her this idea about the Dell and she had never seen the Dell. She had never been to the Dell. And so I, the War on Drugs played a show at the Troc. And I picked up the manager after the show. And I drove her to the Dell. And we like broke in. And I'm like showing her this venue. And she's absolutely blown away. Because it's in East Fairmont Park. It's like looking over the Schuylkill. There's just this beautiful backdrop of trees. And she's like, how the hell do I not know about this venue? And I'm like, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. This is perfect. This was probably 2015. It wasn't until two years later, 2017, that they had the, the new record coming out. They were trying to figure out where they're going to play in Philly on tour. And I was like, hey, you know, we can tie this into your tour and do it at the Dell. Uh, it was the first rock show that had been there in, you know, 40 years. Yeah. Uh, people loved it. And now, again, we're going back this year with Future Island. So uh, I'm excited. I'm excited for people to see the venue. I'm excited to help the venue kind of grow a little bit. And uh, yeah, I hope everyone's there on September 5th. What would you say is a common misconception about you? Well, I think for the most part, I am who people think I am. But kind of a random one uh, that really isn't important at all is I have a tattoo on my right bicep. and. You know, everyone in Philly thinks it's Philly skyline. Everyone in Houston thinks it's Houston skyline, but it is 
the Detroit skyline yeah. where I'm from. Is it? Is, it's actually the, the Detroit skyline because yeah. I feel like you could like just get like a. Well, I mean, one. that's <laughs> the thing now. Like the Detroit skyline is different. What would you say is the biggest challenge facing Philadelphia today? From the sporting world, yeah, I think it's just you go into any season. It's about you know staying healthy. Obviously, with Carson this year, I think it's you know and the rest of that team. You know, I think keep staying healthy is always going to be you know, one of the biggest concerns. And then in in the civic world, and for us in public space parks, it's really trying to crack the code on generating some revenue for neighborhood parks. You know, you see in big cities, the kind of parks that, you know, are for tourists, they're programmed, they have revenue. I mean, there's a Starbucks at Dilworth Plaza. The neighborhood parks need a way to kind of generate revenue. I mean, so we're trying to figure that out. One of the exciting things we're trying to do is kind of create this thing we're calling the MTWB street team and kind of, you know, the parks we've worked on kind of create almost like a, like a district where we kind of can fill the gap in kind of the maintenance between what the neighborhood and the community is responsible for and what parks and rec is capable of. And then we kind of fill in that, that void. And so we're working on that, but it's always a funding issue, you know, in a lot of ways, to better understand it, it's like trying to do what the Center City District does for Center City to a network of neighborhood parks. Yeah, that's that was one of the first things that came to mind because you got Center City District, Old City, University City. They're these specific entities that are here for that, right? Can that be done elsewhere in the city? I think it can. I think it could. It just, you know, you got to find a way to to pay for it. Yeah. You know, like Center City District, it's a tax on the businesses. Right. I don't think the neighborhoods that we have parks, we can tax the neighborhood to do this. So it's gotta be, it's gotta come from the private sector mm -hmm. or the big foundation world. What excites you most about Philadelphia today? I think on the, on the sports, and again, I'm a very much a football and basketball fan. I think you, you have to be super stoked about what's happening with the Sixers and the Eagles. You know, if you're a 10 year old kid growing up in Philadelphia, it's a, I think it's gonna be a great decade. Both are really well-run organizations, I think with Howie and Elton Brand. I mean, I think they've got a bunch of really, both teams have some young, great stars yeah. uh, that are committed uh, not only to their craft, but committed and understand, you know, how important it is and how lucky they are to be in this city. Uh, I think on the public space side, I think the investment you're seeing, the investments you see all over the city yeah. is a great moment. I think, you know, obviously you can debate what is smart and what isn't, but I think the overall investment around the city is a good sign. I think the investment Mayor Kenny is making in, you know, the parks infrastructure is so needed right now, which I'm excited about in the yeah. city. Everyone around the city should be excited about. I think what's crazy to me is how those two things are so intertwined because the amount of pride that Philadelphians have now in, in Philadelphia because of the renaissance of the sports teams, Eagles winning win the Super Bowl, the process working out, Bryce Harper's coming to town, signed a 13 year deal, no trade clause, you know, like no opt out. So he's here. You see that in sports, which is the thing I think that touches every single Philadelphian's life. Like they can yeah. choose to live in their bubble and, and not go to the parks and not talk to their neighbors, but everyone follows sports. I think that it's adding this level of confidence and enthusiasm about the city that's going to translate to the public space, the parks, things like that. Would you agree with that? Have you felt that at all? I hope you're right. And I think so. I mean, the Eagles are Super Bowl champion now, you know, they have got that monkey off their back. The yeah. Phillies are world have won a world championship. 
Um, so yeah, I hope so. I mean, there's a lot of momentum. I think there's a lot of way to connect the two. Um, I think you have to be smart about it, but I think, you know, this is a very prideful city and, you know, a lot of it stems from people's love and passion for sports. And I hope it carries over into other areas of the city. The fifth annual Make the World Better Benefit Concert takes place at the Dell Music Center on September 5th at 7 p.m. And tickets are available at mtwb.org or via the link in the show notes. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow along and say hello on Twitter and Instagram at PodPhillyWho. And you can join the email newsletter at PodPhillyWho.com. Here's a very special thanks to Philly Who's patrons, Sam Schwartz, Josh Koppelman, Bob Moore, Alex Hillman, Vanessa Generelli, Ryan Fitzgerald, and Matt Glick. If you'd like to join them in supporting the show and getting bonus content, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Philly Who. Philly Who is a Q9 production. This episode was recorded in the Philly Who studio powered by CIC and was hosted and produced by me with associate production by Matt Labick. Angela Gervasi, Jackson Neal, and Lauren Hunter. Editing by Max Graham. Artwork by Lauren Carhart. And special thanks to Lindsay Scanapico. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Till next time. <laughs>